0: Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Liz Plumpton.
1: And I'm Phil Ree.
0: Yes, we're back for a third season of the podcast. And we've even roped in a new presenter.
1: Each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage.
0: This month's episode focuses on the history of the Crescent Theatre Birmingham, which is celebrating a big birthday this season. I've been talking to Claire Crossland, the Crescent's Head of Archives, about the rewards and challenges of archiving 100 years of amateur theatre
1: history. And we'll be delving into the archives to find out a bit more about the history of the Crescent Theatre Company and about past productions of the two classic shows that are opening its centenary season this month, *Blithe Spirit and Pride and Prejudice. The Crescent Theatre Company's story began in Birmingham City Centre in December 1923, when a few City Council employees entertained their colleagues with a Christmas review of sketches and songs in the Council House canteen. The review was a huge success, and the group decided to form a theatre society shortly afterwards, and so the municipal players were established in early 1924. For the next seven years, the group continued to present plays in the canteen, but their ambitions quickly grew, and they launched a fundraising appeal to acquire their own theatre. In 1931, an opportunity presented itself when numbers 17, 18 and 19, The Crescent, Birmingham, became available to lease from the council. These premises, together with the derelict Baskerville Hall, were converted by the members, often with bare hands and hired tools, to a theatre with a raked auditorium, stage, dressing rooms and workshops. The theatre opened to the public in April 1932 and the Theatre Company adopted the name the Crescent Theatre Company. The Crescent
0: staged a diverse range of theatre throughout the 1930s until 1939 when, at the outbreak of World War II, all theatres were closed. Restrictions were lifted in 1940 and the Crescent became Birmingham's Garrison Theatre solely for the entertainment of troops and auxiliary services. The members fitted in rehearsals for productions around their daily work and civil defence duties. The ensuing years saw the Crescent create the Crescent Theatre School and a youth theatre. They also acquired adjoining buildings and were set for expansion when the council dealt a blow. The land was needed for development and the theatre company was given notice to quit.
1: The council offered the Crescent a site on Cumberland Street with an interest-free loan to build a new theatre. The new theatre, the second Crescent Home, was opened in October 1964. The new building quickly established itself as a vibrant arts venue in the heart of Birmingham and was in great demand from other theatre groups wishing to hire it. Through the 70s and 80s the Crescent flourished.
0: However, in the late 1980s history repeated itself as the council disposed of the ground lease and the theatre's 1960s architecture did not fit in with the style of the planned new development. Once more, the Crescent was faced with the prospect of losing its home. But, after long and delicate negotiations, the developers, Brindley Place PLC, agreed to finance a new building on a canal-side site, fronting onto Sheepcote
1: Street. The current Crescent Theatre building opened in 1998, housing a 300-seater proscenium arch main house and a 100-seater flexible studio space along with rehearsal spaces, a bar, workshop and extensive wardrobe and scenery stores. And so the Crescent Theatre Company prepares to open its 100th season in September 2023, continuing the long tradition of producing high-quality amateur theatre in the heart of England's Second City. The company will be returning to its roots this December when it performs the Christmas Wassail, a festive celebration in song and spoken word, back at the Birmingham City Council House, where it all began a century earlier.
0: So I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Crossland. Claire is the head of archives at the Crescent Theatre. Uh, She's been a member for about four years and she also works backstage on props and sometimes helps out with set. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for thinking that the stuff I'm doing is interesting enough to talk to me about. Uh, Absolutely. So... um, Obviously, this is the beginning of the Crescent centenary season. Yes. And the theatre company's been around uh, for much longer than any of us have been alive, mm-hmm. and even our oldest and longest standing members. Um, but how did you personally get involved with the Crescent?
2: Uh, uh, so, as you said, it was about four years ago. Um, I had just turned 19. I'd moved here the university a few months ago. And uh, I, I'd always been interested in doing theatre but I'd never really had a chance to do it at school for various reasons Um, I I was forced to be in the nativity when I was very very little and I was very angry about it I did not want to go (laughs) on stage but they made me I I kept saying I want to I want to do backstage stuff I just want to do backstage stuff but they kept being like your parents want to see you on stage and six is too young to be a stage manager I don't know what that (laughs) is about (laughs) um but yeah I'd always wanted to do backstage stuff but the university societies didn't really seem right for me but this did so I came here
0: so what were you studying at university
2: uh I studied politics
0: and that was at Birmingham uh yes okay great so you joined the Crescent that so 2019 was kind of the year before the pandemic so did you manage to get involved with anything before the theatres all kind of shut down in 2020
2: uh yes I did uh three shows my um, uh, pressure, Christmas Carol, and Hamlet. Hamlet was the last one, right before things shut down and closed. I think a week before everything ended. So that was very lucky.
0: So what were you doing on those productions?
2: Uh, I did props on all three of those.
0: Yeah. And what is it that you like about backstage work? So that's quite a strong <laughs> preference to have at such a young age. I think you know. <laughs> there's definitely the kids who don't want to be on stage at all because they just shy or yeah. you know nervous but to be so clear that you wanted to be involved but you wanted to be backstage you know at the age of six is pretty um impressive really so what is it that you enjoy about that aspect of theatre
2: so part of it is just that I, I don't love performing I have performed in the past I used to be a figure skater um so I had to perform for that and I I was in that activity I was in one other school show but I'd never it it's just fundamentally more interesting to me backstage stuff and i've kind of always felt that way uh just and maybe it's a little bit that i kind of like the idea of being in charge of things as well instead of just being told what to do yep um but you should try directing <laughs> <laughs> that's very good for people that like being yeah. in charge um, I, well sort of in the middle really I, I like um helping facilitate uh other people's things but i like in in a way where I've got my own thing that I'm in control of I don't know if being in charge in charge is (laughs) uh it's a little bit intimidating right now at least
0: I suppose with props you're in charge of a a really important aspect of the show aren't you you have to make sure that everything is is right um Mm -hmm. at first of all and then that everything is there in the right place at the right time doing the thing it's supposed to do
2: yeah yeah and um and that lends itself well to archives as well because it's just all about uh, finding ways to keep things uh, as organised as
0: possible, uh, even as things change kind of all around you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what is it you particularly enjoy about props? Is it the is it the finding the right prop or making the prop or is it being backstage running props while mm. the show's going on?
2: Uh, I don't know if it's props that I specifically... I, I started doing props basically just because I was told that was something where help was needed and yeah. i went oh I, i'd like to do something helpful um i'd like to try and do some other things as well that are in, in other sections and stuff but yeah it's it's mostly just that i like being uh in charge of something i guess where i'm helping other people do what they need to do and it's all collaborative and that's uh that's very enjoyable for me
0: great So in preparation for the theatre's centenary season we uh, launched a digital archive project or maybe just an archive project but I suppose the nature of the world today is that uh, the digital is the way in which we access most of our content and the way in which we tend to try and store things for posterity Um, and you've been very much at the forefront of that project. Tell us a bit about the archiving process. Okay so uh, we started
2: the project properly last January. Uh, there's been archiving efforts uh, in the past, because <laughs> I'm glad that was, because if I'd had to start truly from scratch, yeah. I don't know <laughs> how I would have. Um, but we we started the, the digitized digitizing process in January, and for the first five months of that, that has just been um manually typing out all the show names and dates and, and the names of actors and stuff into uh essentially a database that we've created that uh took uh, I started working on it on January twentieth and finished on may twenty fifth <laughs> there There are reasons I remember those dates i'm not not quite that obsessive um uh but that that 's how long it uh, it took to get all all those names in and so now we've got a searchable database of uh every actor, every um every behind, behind the scenes person, every show uh that has been done that we have records of, which is which is great. So um, that's
0: about ninety-nine years or
2: um yeah about that yeah. It's it's it kinda of give or take because a lot of the early stuff is missing. Um yeah. but and also actually some more recent stuff is missing as well because there have been times where archiving kind of lapsed. But so I'm, I'm working on chasing that up now, that's one of the things I'm working on and I'm also working on, uh, we're trying to get photos in because that's sort of the next step, so it will be ready to be publicly available and I'm also, we've got a big physical archive cabinet that is completely unorganised that I'm trying to work out a system for organising <laughs> it's, it's, it's a challenge
0: so in terms of those very <laughs> early days, when the theatre company that was then uh, the Municipal Players, yes. not before it became the Crescent Theatre mm. Company, started, initially they didn't have a home, if I'm correct. Uh, so yes. Are those the, the years that tend to be missing in terms of just we don't have programmes or playbills? Or
2: yes, there's very little from pre-1932, which is mm-hmm. when it becomes the Crescent. Uh, when it's the Municipal Players, there's, there's a few things from that time or... There's some replicas of things from that time, interestingly, uh, but there's not very much available. There's certainly nothing from the very first show, which wouldn't have had a program at all, because uh, it was not <laughs> a uh, you know, proper theatre production. It was uh, city council employees just doing a show for their colleagues. Yeah. Um, so we don't know much about that show at all, unfortunately, but that would have been the first one in 1923, which is why. So, year. 1932,
0: was that when they moved into Baskerville House, um, Baskerville Hall?
2: Yes, it was that and uh, a few other, I, th- I think it was uh, a few different China Street places that were all taken to. Yeah. That's my understanding. Yeah. But yeah, so 1932.
0: It's a, a pretty big job just to get all of that information into a database. Yes. <laughs> Did you find it daunting? I suppose yes
2: in terms of kind of if you see it all laid out in front of you physically it, it's just a lot of it's a lot of just stacks and stacks of paper <laughs> four times as tall as me, probably if you could yeah. stack them um but it, it I, you kind of just take it in small chunks at a time and just sit I would sit and work for somewhere between like Uh, three to six hours at a time I would come in and and work on it usually and there were other people working on it as well I absolutely should say uh I did the most mostly just because my schedule allowed it this year yeah um but yeah other other people have worked on it as well I'm very grateful to that
0: yeah so you mentioned that the next stage is to um get pictures added to the archive what's the process for that particularly in the for the pre-digital photograph era
2: so that is just going to be it's just scanning <laughs> it's just scanning uh a lot of these photos we've got uh for the most recent ones we've got them all saved thankfully so I, it's just a matter of copy and pasting but uh for, for anything honestly it, kind of pre-2010s even it's mostly just what was printed out and then I have to, I'm going to have to scan it and other people are going to have to scan it. I'm going to have people helping me, hopefully. Uh, just, yeah, just scanning and uploading into these massive uh, files.
0: Yeah. So mm-hmm. 2010 must have been around the time when our, our current theatre photographer started okay. working with us, Graham, who's also a member. Mm-hmm. So before that, there were digital photographs. So I was a member before that, but possibly not stored digitally in the same way um as as since then and so i don't know if there are obviously how many photos there are for some of the older productions but are you scanning everything or is there an editorial process where you decide what makes the cut there's uh, so many pictures per show
2: so that is an interesting one um because i my plan i'm going to scan everything everything is going to be in the archive because that's uh, to me that's the point of having an archive is to yeah. have everything there. However, because this is an, you know, an existing business, there are certain photos that cannot be publicly available because one of the things I'm going to be very careful how I phrase this. <laughs> um, uh, the, obviously, this has been around for a hundred years, and when you look at the history of all of it it very much feels like a, a microcosm of 100 years of British history almost yeah social history and so very much it's it's cultural history and that is it, it's very fascinating to see how we've been quite ahead in some ways we have be very good about gay men's history actually and representing uh gay men in uh plays maybe unsurprising for the theatre but um uh that's that's something we've been really really good on I've been really impressed with but there are other ways where we have not been ahead of uh the kind of maybe contemporary social aspects and so there are there are definitely photos of things that would not align with the moral values anyone here holds n- yeah. now um so i suppose
0: can, it's can i say what i yeah it's I'm important thinking. to record those i i assume Absolutely. you're talking about things such as uh blackface yes yes which I, is relatively common for a surprisingly long time into the 20th century, I would say, and in my experience yeah. with other amateur groups as well, not only mm-hmm. this one.
2: Yes, there, there are photos of, of that and similar things, and also not in terms of the photos but in just terms of records we've got and stuff, some quite astonishingly sexist stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and that <laughs> because it, it's been determined that that really can't be displayed, be made available publicly because of how it could be misinterpreted why we are keeping available but I my plan is for there to be some acknowledgement that yes these do exist and there, if you are an academic who wants to see them for some reason you can contact me and I'll we'll figure out a yeah. way for you to see it but um, I, I think it's I think I agree that it's not necessarily appropriate to have it publicly available but I think it absolutely has to be acknowledged as part of this. Of the history, yeah, yeah I
0: think as soon as you put something on the internet, there's a danger of it being taken without any context exactly in essence and and the kind of you know the kind of nuance you'd want to put on it isn't always possible if it just becomes a searchable Google image that you know you wouldn't necessarily say would necessarily want to be associated with in a kind of without mm-hmm. any background as to. You know, it's, it's yeah. one of those things, I suppose, it's like lots of things in history. They happened. We don't have yeah. to celebrate them. It's probably helpful to record them.
2: Yes. But. And I also, I want to be really clear, I don't want anything to be made light of it, I guess, because I think this is real... i going to bring up my politics degree here. <laughs> I think this is real kind of temptation with looking at that sort of thing, to look at it and say, well, it, it, they could do it then because it was okay then, because um, it was a different time and it was okay then, and it wasn't offensive then. And that is just not true. Um, it's not that things become offensive, it's that it we, we, we learn that it, it, as a kind of wider society, we are told that they are because people who are targeted by this sort of thing are able to say so when they mostly weren't before or if they were saying so weren't listened to and I don't want anyone kind of looking at this stuff and thinking well we're not taking it seriously because we're just thinking oh it was okay back then because it wasn't it was never okay and um and I I want that acknowledged I, I think it's really important to take that attitude to it and not
0: I suppose it's treading that line isn't it it's not about it's not about excusing it or celebrating it but equally it is fact that it happened Mm. um and I suppose that is part of a social and cultural history absolutely if we're being optimistic maybe an evolution some things slowly Mm. getting better Mm. um we hope yeah so, on a slightly lighter note, yes. <laughs> have there been anything um, that's been particularly interesting or unusual that you've come across in the archive?
2: Uh, yes, I I brought a few things actually. Some of the most interesting stuff is unfortunately not uh, the best for this medium because uh, it's it's visual. It's, it's you know gorgeous set designs and costume designs and uh, and photographs and stuff. But obviously. Doesn't really work for audio, so I brought some stuff that had, maybe had some interesting text. So the first thing I've got is this is a membership card from the nineteen forties. Uh, I'm not, I
0: don't That's know. It's, probably about yeah. an a six yeah. green, yeah, it's, uh, sort of cardboard book, little booklet, sort of passport mm. size. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, it's got amendments in it from nineteen forty-eight, so I think the actual. Booklet must be a little bit older than that, maybe 1947. Um, so yeah this is yeah, it's what, it's what the membership cards looked like uh, in the post-war so period. So what
0: did you get in your membership card in the <laughs> late 1940s? It's
2: mostly just rules. Um, <laughs> I brought it because there's one rule that always makes me laugh um, and under the uh, rules of theatre management as adopted by the management committee in 1946 we've got uh, rule number 16 which is (laughs) staff teas or other refreshments provided at the expense of the theatre shall be available only to the members of staff actually engaged in the production.
0: (laughs) They probably still had rationing in 1946 though. where they did. So, you know, you can see that, that is a bit of that coming through. Although I'm sure people have been moaning about people tea and coffee for like
2: ever. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it made me laugh. The actually, I love, but, yeah, I, I love that, especially because it's quite late down the list, which suggests it may be um, a later many, role because it was a problem. How many rules are there? Uh, there are 23 rules of theatre management, and these ones, that's one of the general rules. Um, most of the other ones are sort of fairly standard, so you can have a look if you Let's like.
0: Let's have a look. During a production, male members of the cast and staff shall not enter the women's dressing room <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> yes. No animals shall be brought into the theatre yeah mm. it's actually some of these are just like the same things that we still yeah that <laughs> we still you know as a member of yeah. the board of this yeah. so theater some of these things are things we still talk about now <laughs> that's one of the things that really strikes me about it it's
2: so much there's so much stuff that is just it's it's 100 years old or 80 years old or whatever, but it's the same stuff that we deal with now yeah i love that
0: this is wonderful oh one of them's been rescinded it's got rescinded drawn mm. through it number 12 and then it's been renumbered underneath. Amendment of the rules at the 18th Annual General Meeting of the Crescent Theatre Players. It was resolved that rules 8 and 12 be rescinded. This is a lovely thing. What else have you got?
2: Um, so I've we've got, a, I mean, we've got so many programmes, but this this is one that again, just had something in it that made me laugh. Um, it's from 1945. It's for a production of a show called The Government Inspector, which I think... I think we did again at some point,
0: but I'd have to check. We've probably done it a few few (laughs) times.
2: Yeah. Uh, So back then there would always be these... uh, There'd be a page of uh, sort of a letter from, I think usually the theatre chairman or sometimes someone else on on the board of the theatre who would do uh, just a message to audience members. Uh, Usually quite personable, I think. Possibly it was a much smaller community coming to see these shows back then, and so maybe they really did all know each other. Um, <clears throat> but this one has a, a postscript on it that <laughs> I really enjoy. Uh, this is from, uh, uh, it's by uh, Norman Leaker, the first chairman. It says, uh, P.S., I am asked to say that talkative latecomers to the performances and early leavers, particularly those who crash out by the wrong lower door, are to be deprecated. Or was it decapitated? <laughs> And then I don't have it to hand, but uh, the following programme uh, includes another postscript where he mentions that uh, uh, at uh, performances of the government inspector, there were very few talkative latecomers or early leavers, and that was appreciated. So, so I, by
0: early leavers, do they mean people leaving before the play finished?
2: I assume so, yes.
0: <laughs> I thought the form was generally yeah. to sneak out if you were doing that, not really loads of noise.
2: Yeah. Well, um, clearly, this—I—I I, I think we should be threatening to go full Henry VIII on um, <laughs> on rude audience members. Yeah. It clearly works. <laughs> and then the other thing I've got is from much more recently. It's from the uh, nineteen ninety-two, where it's just—it was a little document put together by the backstage team, uh, which I'll show you, uh, asking for help with the strike. And I just enjoy. The way it's all phrased, they put together this fake newspaper.
0: Well. There's a couple of A4 uh, pieces of paper, and it's called the Backstage Bugle. So, it, I think it's it's basically they need help with a strike, yeah, which is a pretty common thing to put a call out about. But they've obviously maybe they were having trouble attracting people to help because they've kind of <laughs> they've kind of gone quite full on in their uh, yeah they think it's all over full stop but it's not full stop apocalyptic orgy full stop we need your help full stop get dirty full stop what is it <laughs> and then they've done a kind of like a mock-up it's like a newspaper i suppose isn't it but like a front page newspaper um eurovision fiasco Singer Michael Ball announced yesterday that he is withdrawing from the Eurovision Song Contest just 24 hours before the show. Was he actually in the 1990s? I need to A tired and emotional ball said, Crescent Musical's only come around once a year. If I'd known the Eurovision Contest was going to clash, I'd never have agreed to do it. It's a horrible song anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also... It also references the LA riots. Um... I'm not sure how on message this is, but the real cause of the Los Angeles riots emerged last night. Community leaders demanded tickets to the last night of the Crescent Theatre's production of Guys and Dolls in Birmingham, England. Yeah, it's
2: one of those things. It's just <laughs> so inappropriate that, despite everything I was saying earlier, it I kind of does wrap so
0: I know, and I—I I mean, it goes on to kind of, you know, kind of articulate um some of the. The jet, the grievances that were behind those riots, yeah. but again, it's kind of interesting that they use that yeah. um, in this kind of quite frivolous yeah. context. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I just I remember the
2: first time I found that I was just I, I was with someone else when we found it. We were just reading through and crying, laughing. It was. <laughs> So well done to whoever did that.
0: All members of the cast are cordially (laughs) invited to take part in this apocalyptic orgy of destruction, (laughs) this practice for Armageddon, this strike to end all strikes, this end of the set as we know it. Mm. So I feel like Mm. our uh, current heads of section probably missing a trick here. They're going just just asking if anyone wants to come and help is probably a bit tame. They need to. Yeah. Again,
2: (laughs) on on principle, I have to say, you know, treating the LA rights like that inappropriate, but. Um, it is very funny.
0: <laughs> the whole thing is very funny. I now need to check, is was Michael Ball the UK entry? Song Contest* 90 yeah. I suppose it, yes. I, I have learned something yeah. today. But yeah, yeah, I mean, the the overall
2: thing, though, it, the stuff that I love finding most is people complaining. This is all people complaining. Yeah. And I, uh, you, I mean, I find lovely stuff as well. I I found... I didn't bring them because I thought it was maybe inappropriate to read them on here but I found love letters between people who met here and Mm. have since died and all their theatre related stuff came to us and so their letters got mixed in with it and I've I've read them and been like oh I shouldn't be reading this Um, so I didn't bring them so you find really lovely stuff as well but I love the complaining the most partly because it makes me laugh but also it, it there's so much complaining but it's by people who come back so it's not people complaining because they're miserable or because they hate this. They're complaining because they care, and I love that. Is I, that I...
0: audience or members? <laughs> or members. Members complaining. Yeah. Um... Why am I surprised? Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, the, you know, there's there's stuff going back uh, as far as there have been newsletters where people uh, are complaining that members aren't doing their duties. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. Um, yeah, I just... I love that. I, I I love complaining. I love complaining, and I can tell the difference between complaining because you hate it and complaining because you love it and this is complaining because you love it
0: i have to say um i've had a look at just a very small number of programs from the 1930s and the thing that i get completely mesmerized by is the adverts oh yes they're just so of their time and there i just remember there's obviously a big push for gas there's all this stuff about the birmingham gas company and you can kind of trace the the narrative of these adverts through a few programs where they're, you know, <laughs> you know and and people offering, um, you know, elocution lessons. Yes. <laughs> it's just yes, I just love it. I'm like, never mind the play. I just oh want God. to read these adverts. Yes, yes.
2: Yesterday I was looking through a, a magazine that uh, of sorts that we put out in 1939. This was Municipal Players magazine, um, and on top it's got, it's got a whole section listing all the things you need to consider while choosing an amateur production, which is very funny because it's all still very much applicable now and I again I love that stuff but yeah there's a whole section where someone's advertising at e- elocution advice. <laughs> so I'm reading through that and just this is bizarre
0: yep <coughs> love it so we've touched on some of these but what have been the challenges um of digitizing nearly a hundred years of amateur theater history
2: so there are there are definitely a few different ways I can answer that um the most literal one just being that there is a lot of it, and it is physically very heavy. Yeah. And I am a I, I am five foot one and don't exercise quite as much as I should, other than carrying very large stacks of paper around. <laughs> um. So that I, mean, I I'm I'm fairly strong. I wouldn't do this if I wasn't. But you you have to be. That's not something people necessarily think about. But genuinely. There's a physical aspect. There is absolutely a physical aspect. That that is something that they tell you if you're interested in going into archives, is you have to be physically strong. Yeah. Because it's actually a very physically demanding job. Um and yeah, as I say, there's just a lot of it to go through and it can be quite overwhelming at times to look at it and go, I don't even know where to start with this and you just have to pick one thing and just go, I'm just gonna work on that and it's Again, it it's that that is challenging. But it's also it I mean it's also quite emotionally uh challenging at times. in order to get through all of that all of that stuff, you have to kind of desensitise yourself to things. You know, peop people do come up to me and just like, I don't know how you can get through all of this. I mean I'd just be too interested in looking through all of it and I'm like I am very interested in it, but I have to just tell myself I'm not, because it will never get done. Yeah, that would be terrible, I'd be like,
0: I've spent three hours reading this programme from 1933.
2: Yeah, (laughs) so I just have to turn that off and turn it all into, this is just data, this is just data that I have to enter into this spreadsheet or whatever. Um, And and I can do that, and that can, if anyone's ever spoken to me while I was working, that makes me seem a bit heartless while I'm working. (laughs) But it has to be done, but ever so often you will come across something that sort of breaks you out of that. Um and one of the things that you're going through a hundred years of stuff, you're typing this one person's name over and over and over again, and you notice one day, I haven't I haven't typed that person's name for a while, and then you open up the next program and there's a death announcement. And like intellectually you know that this person who was active in the, you know, nineteen forties, fifties and was probably already in their own kind of forties, fifties. At that point, isn't going to be alive now. Like intellectually, when I'm going through all the '50s programs and stuff, I know none of these people are alive. But it's still kind of something to be confronted with. It mm. whenever you come across, and it's and it tells you a bit about that person, and and it's it's sad. Yeah. Um, and then also, but it's
0: also kind of nice, I think, yeah. that that person's involvement in the theatre is being recorded. Yeah, in absolutely. a way that will be more publicly available in the future than in a program in a filing cabinet not that that's not valuable but
2: absolutely yeah i want to kind of put together something with the death announcements um we've got a few funeral programs even from people who were Mm. very uh, active um because i think that is i really i think it's really important to preserve the legacies of these individual people as well a lot of times uh, i've got Kind of like little mini collections because people when they when they die they get their families will often pass and all of their theatre stuff like the theatre as I was saying earlier and you know it feels wrong to just sort that all out into like oh this is this show's programme I should just stick it with the rest of the stuff for that show because like no this was this person's programme yeah, it just kind of feels wrong to <laughs> separate it all out so I'm kind of hoping to unless it fills a gap though right? yeah <laughs> if it fills a gap, a gap it's if going it feels in, a gap, off, it's going yeah. in. <laughs> but otherwise if if it doesn't, then yeah. it feels like it would be a nice thing to kind of keep together properly-labeled individual collections. I think that it says something about the people who have been here, and that's nice. And then uh, we talked about it earlier, but then, yeah, there are also the kind of challenges of coming across stuff that does not really align with what you would like to see, and that can be just kind of difficult to to grapple with. Especially the stuff where it's kind of. Do, I've talked to a few people about this. It's challenging. One. Do you know a show called Have you heard of a show called South by Julian Green? No. Right. So South is South is a difficult play. It was done. It, it was written by June, uh, a playwright called Julian Green. He's French American. Uh, in 1953, and it, they wanted to bring it to the UK and perform in London in 1955, but it was banned by the Lord Chancellor because it had very very mild, frankly uh, homosexual content Mm. Um, it wasn't able to be performed in Britain until 1959 Uh, I I think my understanding is that the Wolfenden Report helped make that possible it was actually done as an ITV play of the week uh, in 1959 Uh, it was only rediscovered about 10 years ago, and it's is the first known uh, TV broadcast in Britain to deal with gay relationships at Mm. all.
0: Uh, We're kind of in a taste of honey honey territory time-wise there, aren't we? Just in terms of a British equivalent. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, And the thing that's really interesting is that we did it in 1956. So that's before the ITV broadcast, that's before the Waltham report, that's a year after it was banned, which is incredibly brave i think incredibly brave to have done that and incredibly admirable however that production is also one of the ones that has the blackface content uh south refers to the american south it this play is set on the eve of the civil war and julian green was very pro-confederacy uh i found a, an interview with him that like, was i was looking into this uh, ever since i i discovered this this production on maybe my third archiving session and it has kind of been in my brain Stay ever dizzy, since yeah um so I've done some research onto it and yeah yeah there's an interview with Julian Green from when he was in his 90s and his house was just full of confederate flags and stuff and you get the impression it's not that he was a, like a malicious racist that, that that that's not why he was so pro-confederacy but more that he just really uh, he, he wouldn't have been alive for the actual confederacy it was more of something that was instilled in him by his parents uh he, he lived in France. Um, uh it, it seems less that he was again malicious the more that he just didn't really care it, 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 the kind of atrocities committed against black people in the american south seem to have more escaped his notice than anything else which is still not okay but it's a different kind of not okay than active racism <laughs> um and but yeah, it means that this play and also our production of it, because, again, it contains something abhorrent, is you know has this great complication to it. And so it's hard to... The only way to feel about it is complicated because it's, in one way, this very impressive thing and, in one way, this awful thing. So in 1956, 19- was
0: that because <clears throat> the Crescent was an, a private members' club that it could perform it even though it had been banned by the... I
2: I don't know the specifics of it. Interesting. The programme doesn't reference the fact that it had been banned at all. I th- suspect it was performed unlicensed because I think that was the only way it could be performed. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I suspect but it had to do with Maybe because it was a... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't claim to be an expert on no, 1950s no, law. No, i just, just wondering
0: <laughs> but, how they yeah. circumvented that yeah. um, ban, really. And yeah. is it that the production... Chose to use blackface, and that the actors were playing characters who should have been African American. Black, black. Yes, human, I don't know than exact- that being part of the script. uh The
2: the uh I, I I've never seen a script for it, so I don't know what if the script specifically yeah. called for to use blackface. I don't believe the ITV production did, but it's hard to tell because yeah, uh, it's a very old production, and not a huge amount is known about it. Uh, but it doesn't look like it it does look like it in our photos though <laughs> it, it does look like it and yeah it's it's very unpleasant to look at it's mm. not minstrelsy, I should be very clear it's not anything like that, but it is clearly n- not appropriate yeah and but so yeah it's just it's just this very kind of complicated thing, and it's hard to know how to feel about it because i 'd like One of the things I'd like to do with all this moving forward is kind of put together some history, maybe historical displays or social media stuff about specific topics. And it'd be really great to do something about the gay history, for example, Mm because I think in most ways that's really strong. But it's hard to know how to grapple with something like that. I think it has to be acknowledged, but it's hard to know how to. And yeah, I think the only way to is to just keep talking to people about it and keep doing many different perspectives that I'm sure there'll be on it. Um, And just accept that there's never going to be a simple answer to it because we are neither children nor fascists, so there can't be. (laughs) (laughs) So paraphrase, I I think, Frank Turner. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned um, gaps. Yeah. What have you been doing to try and fill obviously no one's alive from the very early days but yeah. some of the more recent gaps how have you approached those
2: so more recent gaps uh that's just been a matter of talking to people really and asking them what have you got in your own collections um uh colin judges uh, who does uh, a lot of set design here has a very uh, impressive personal collection and so i've gone to him and asked him for because st- he's been here since the early 70s so I've been able to go to him and go do you know about this, do you know about this, this thing or I've got this photo and I've no idea what it's from, do you know where it's from and he'll often know. Um, uh, there are other people as well what who... you need a people with a comprehensive
0: yeah. collection and a good memory. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, there have been other people as well who have been able to provide lists of this is what's missing and they've been able to fill out a lot of it and I'm very very grateful for that. Um, yeah, it, it's just a matter of trying to find the people who have the information. <laughs> Uh, so it's uh, it requires more socialising than you might expect.
0: Yeah, yeah, you <laughs> can awesome. see that. Yeah. That must be interesting too, though, hearing people's kind of stories and their Ab- know, their memories.
2: Absolutely. That's one of the most kind of unexpectedly rewarding things about this all because I didn't... So the initial plan for all the yeah, data entry archiving stuff was that people were going to get some folders of archiving materials, take them home, and, and just work from home. That was not practical for me because I don't have a car and we all agreed. It was heavy. (laughs) It was heavy and we all agreed I shouldn't be taking this stuff on the public trains. Um, So I've been coming in to work here instead at the theatre and I work in our our members room typically, which if you're coming into the theatre, generally you have to go through uh, in order to get where you're going. And so people come through and they'd see me working and they'd stop and go, oh, where are you up to? And particularly older members or, you know, people who've been here for a long time would see me working and go, oh, what are you working on? And I'd show them and they'd recognise it because they were in it or someone they knew was in it. Or they they had a story for me about Mm. it and they'd stop and talk to me about it and tell me about that stuff. And I I feel quite bad because, again, I kind of go quite heartless while I'm working and I'd just be keeping working while they were talking to me. But I was always listening and always interested, even if I was kind of not really just typing the whole time <laughs> but and and yeah it was really a ni- way for me to kind of get to know some of these people that I hadn't known very well beforehand because they always wanted to know what I was doing and so I would end up talking to them about it and asking about it and that's been really wonderful I, I love talking I'm I'm probably one of the youngest people here I'm, I'm 23 um unless there's a secret cohort of nineteen year olds I don't know about <laughs> um, no
0: we need some but we yeah don't, we need not at the moment, yeah,
2: and so you know th- these are people from very different generations to me uh that i don't I haven't always had a lot of opportunities to talk to people from that period, and I love that well, period <laughs> that's very rude um from 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 different generations to me and i I love talking to people who are older than me I always have and it's great to have this way of kind of connecting about stuff and have this opportunity to talk to people because it's so interesting. And, uh, yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I said, I said at the start, I didn't really feel like the university societies were right for me. And that's because I've never, I, I, I've never really got on with people who are precisely my own age, <laughs> um, with a few exceptions. Uh, I've always liked talking to people who are very different ages to me. Uh, so, you know, when I was 19, I didn't want to hang out with other 19 year olds though. I, The few friends I had thought it was very odd that I was coming to spend all my time with people who were (laughs) a fair bit older than me. But uh, I I was just more excited by the idea of getting to spend time with with people who were very different different ages, very different life experiences. Um, And so this has been a really great opportunity to do that. I hope when I'm that age that I'm interested in talking to (laughs) 19-year-olds, I guess. Or 23-year-olds as the case may be. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think that's... (laughs) Probably one of the great and fairly unique things about amateur theatres, really, is yeah. thinking about it. So we have the youth theatre here at the Crescent. So potentially we have members if you include the youth theatre from sort of the age of mm. 12, 13, mm. up to some I won't name names, but people in their mid to late 80s yeah. <laughs> who are still, um, you know, active members. And, and that's just
2: brilliant. And glad I've had a really good reason to be talking to them it's nice
0: so what's next for the digital archive how do you see it evolving and developing in the future
2: right so well I will always be updating things it never stops yeah does it? yeah everything, everything the show yeah. we're doing in three um, weeks will need so, to be archived yeah uh, and yeah I like I say I'd like to be kind of using it to maybe do some more historical displays and stuff. I know there have been talks about us having more displays and stuff. We've got this lovely display uh, in this walkway up at the bar that's got the whole history of it, and that's great. And I think it would be nice to do more stuff like that because we've got all this gorgeous stuff that's just sitting in a cabinet. In other words, we've all just got to keep working on uh, the photo digitisation now. And again, hopefully some of it will be going public soon. I've been saying that for months, but hopefully it will be soon i think we're pretty close to it there's basically just one or two more things that need to be added to the most recent years uh we, we're doing it by decade so yeah uh, i've been working on getting everything from the 2020s so far ready to be uh, public there's just a couple of things that need to be added um we'll talk about maybe changing a couple of things on the website uh and then it should be available and i think that'll be interesting hopefully um Potentially more, and then right now I'm also working. I'm working on the 2010s because I'm I'm done with everything I can do on the 2020s, and after that I think I'm actually going to do the 1950s because the 2000s intimidates me a little bit. I think there were more shows in the 2000s than any other decade. There's there's just so much, um, and so yeah, I mean the output of the theatre has increased
0: largely over time hasn't it I think yeah, if you definitely. look at the early days the number of productions mm. per season um was in yeah. single figures certainly yeah and yeah that increased um over increased time I now, think currently we do sort of 12 yeah. to 14 shows a year I don't know if we used to do more than that perhaps we uh did.
2: in 2009 I believe it was 25 <laughs> so yeah it's 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 just a, a lot. I was a member in two
0: thousand and nine. I do yeah. not remember these twenty five shows I had to say, <laughs> but okay. Yeah,
2: I, th- I think it, it that's counting some kind of like one night stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. That it's it's just a lot. Yeah, um, and um, and more to scan as well because there won't be digital stuff to uh, bring over as much. <laughs> Though I'm quite looking forward to get back to it because I don't have. When when did you join? Can I ask? Uh,
0: two thousand and
2: eight. Okay, so this would have been. It's the stuff I'm thinking uh, like of Janu- is think January, short, yeah, beginning yeah, of
0: 2008, shortly before you.
2: Because I don't know if you've seen any of the posters from kind of the very end of the 90s, early 2000s, but someone discovered word art and oh, decided word art, yeah, <laughs> and decided that is all we need to make a poster from now on. And so that they're, they're some of the most they're they're kind of beautiful to me because they're they're actually rather nostalgic for me to look at because I, I mean I was word art was very much the thing of my, my childhood. Um, you know, I remember going to computer classes and that was what we were being taught how to use. I remember to make a little poster and choosing rainbow word art for the top and being utterly devastated when I found out our printers only did black and white. It's one of my <laughs> earliest formative <laughs> memories. It's not um, but yeah, so that that's really quite delightful to me, but also I'm glad our posters don't look like that anymore. <laughs>
0: yeah, I too I remember when word art was very exciting.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, clip art too. Oh, it's, it's oh, great. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> it's great. Some really, really interesting looking posters and programmes.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Claire. Um <clears throat> It's been fascinating talking about the archive with oh, you, and good. really look forward to to seeing you know some more of the the work that you're doing. Um, tell us about your first love
2: with theatre. Um, so that is it's hard for me to say because I'm very lucky. I come from a family where I've been going to theatre for longer than I can remember because I, I came from a family that was able to do that, um, and. So it, it's hard for me to say what the first thing was, but I, I do have a slightly convoluted early memory of it that I guess might be fitting. So, so the thing is, I was a very literal and kind of realistic child, very practical child. My my grandma, when I was three years old, took me to see um, The Snowman, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, like the children's story, and apparently it's still on every year yeah the Birmingham rep yeah uh, yeah I was taken to see it and we get to the bit where the snowman you know comes to life and it's you know going in a costume and everyone everyone um all the other kids in the audience are going like oh my god it's the snowman and I I don't remember this but I've been my, my grandma loves the story I apparently leaned over to her and I whispered in her ear grandma there's a man in there <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, very, very literal child I was, um, <laughs> and so a few years after that, um, we went to, uh, Panto, we went to Cinderella when I was five, um, and I remember, I, I, I don't remember a lot about the show, but I know, I remember it was very fun, I remember it was very sparkly and pretty, and uh, I think I got a magic wand, which was a prized possession of my childhood, so, great night all around, and, uh, on the way home, my uh we were in the car and we pull up to a red light and you know we're next to a bus shelter and my dad looks out the window and he goes oh kids look it's cinderella and it's it's cinderella's actress she's standing at the bus shelter uh wearing a really unflattering coat and <laughs> looking very much like a normal human being and you know it's one of those things where you know something intellectually like as a child i knew intellectually that it's all actors it's not real magic because again very literal child yeah um, but I'd never been confronted with that. I knew there was a man in the snowman suit, but I'd never seen him. And this is the first time I've like seen the real yeah. human and kind of put those two things together and going like, oh my God, it really, really is just a person. And But you know, it's despite the fact that I know it's not magic. I'm still capable of going to it and enjoying it and enjoying the atmosphere yeah. and thinking it's beautiful and sparkly and magical. And I'm thinking, God, that, that is just a, a person. And they, they convinced me that it was like this... It, they, they put on this whole show that made it feel like it was so so much bigger than that, and, and but it's just a person. That's so cool. That is so cool that they were able to do that. How did they do that? And yeah, that that is actually probably why I'm you asking only why I, I like backstage more. That's probably why. Um, yeah. Is that I was just fascinated with how they made this like really normal woman seem like a magical princess. Like that's just cool. It's, just it's very cool. Story. <laughs> and tell us about a time when you died on stage. <laughs> so this is something that happened to you a few years ago on Christmas Carol. Uh, so the way that show worked is that at the end, you know, all the cast are coming on stage is like, yeah, it's, it's, oh my God, it's Christmas! It's the end of a Christmas Carol! Hooray! Scrooge is redeemed. Uh, Scrooge is redeemed. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then <clears throat> you look up at the sky, and a little hatch opens, and the snow falls down on the stage. Yeah. And everyone um, goes, oh my god, it's snowing, it's the end of the play, we get two bows and go and get pizza. Um, and that was how it worked every night. Uh, because Christmas show works is that there's, most days it's a matinee and an evening show. And so one of the days on a matinee, uh, everyone's gathered, to look looking up the snow, and it doesn't come. The hatch the <laughs> <laughs> just hasn't opened. Uh, and so everyone's kind of looking up and they just have to go like, Yay! Hey. <laughs> Um, it's not snowing. <laughs> yeah. Hooray. And so everyone goes on stage. don't need to the roads. <clears throat> yeah. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, everyone goes off stage and then we spend the whole time that afternoon kind of going like, what happened with the snow? That's not actually happened before. The snow's been really good this whole run. Why why was there no snow? Um, and everyone's very worried about it uh, going into the evening show, but we're just, just going through it. until so we get to the bit at the end and everyone goes down on stage and they're all waiting to see if the snow falls down. and Hatch opens and massive snowfall comes out. Oh, it all comes out. It's brilliant. And everyone goes, yay! (laughs) Completely, sincerely, because they genuinely didn't know it was going to (laughs) happen. And I just lost it backstage. There was just something about knowing that they weren't acting that just got to me. And so they're all coming off and I'm supposed to be doing my backstage stuff, but I just can't. I'm just crying laughing because it's just (laughs) so funny to me. Um, So yeah, I... (laughs) Uh, you should have kept them in suspense for
0: every performance we're not sure if it's going to work tonight guys it's going to be playing up they should yeah it was it it was the most genuine thing that happened that
2: entire run on that stage (laughs) but yeah it was that's a fun memory
0: oh brilliant well thank you so much um for talking to us claire Mm -hmm. it's been really really interesting oh good Inspired by our conversation with Claire Crossland, Phil's been delving into the Crescent archives to find out a bit more about the first two shows of the Crescent centenary season. Both are revivals of classic plays which the company has performed before. First up, opening in the Ron Barber studio on 16th of September and running until the 24th, is Noel Coward's witty supernatural comedy, Blythe Spirit, Phil, what did you find about the past history of Crescent productions of Blythe?
1: Blythe Spirit is actually a very popular play which has been repeatedly performed by the Crescent, 1959, 1979, 2005. The really interesting thing about that is that it was performed in every single one of the Crescent buildings. The second thing, which is more pertinent to an oncoming production, is that in 1979 the production assistant was Colin Simmons. Colin will be directing Othello which will be performed November this year.
0: Fantastic to see how long-standing members run through the Crescent's history. Then opening on 24th of September and running until the 30th is a stage adaptation of Jane Austen's timeless romantic comedy Pride and Prejudice. What did you find about the times the Crescent's done that one before?
1: Pride and Prejudice has been produced twice previously by the Crescent. In 1994 standard indoor show. It featured three members of the company who are still very much active in the theatre and are actually directing this season's plays. Michael Barry, Charlie's aunt, Fee Cotton, educating Rita and Colin Judges, Blythe Spirit, as we've just discussed. The second and more recent production was in 2012 and was both a studio production and then an outdoor summer tour This is a pattern that we continually repeat and which has proved very successful.
0: Thanks, Phil. Great to hear about how so many of our current members run through the Crescent's rich history. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode.
1: You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including Blithe Spirit and Pride and Prejudice, by visiting www.crescent theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media.
0: Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. This episode was researched and presented by Phil Ree and Liz Plumpton. The music is by Brendan Stanley. And the podcast is edited by Kevin Middleton.